Camping on Arran, 1992. Dad, you had shared with me your sleeping bag. And we lay like hands held in one pocket. When the dark flickered and a pause before thunder, a sound like the sky waking. And waking with it, I trembled, trapped, a boy in a storm, in this tight space, ripe with your sleeping man's body. But when the canvas flared again, white with a hem of shadow grass, you were awake and counting down the seconds to thunder. And I, listening, was struck still. As each count became less, the storm brighter, louder, I could feel a closeness, like breath in the air. And I fell asleep as rain would fall, soft. Then in a rush, you counting us into the eye. Hello, and welcome to Two Minute Stories. I am Chris Nealon. And I'm Mark Pajak. Hello, Mark Pajak. <laughs> well, that was an incredibly wooden way to start, wasn't it? I'm made of wood today. Oh, well, you know what they say. We've just heard... A piece, uh, a piece from you called uh, "Camping on Aaron." Nineteen ninety-two, yeah. Nineteen ninety-two. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that piece. About me, Dad. About your dad. Yeah. Oh, bless. Um, well, it's it was set as a as a as a writing exercise uh, in syllabics. So what syllabics? Syllabics are so syllables, basically. So um, oh, right, okay. It's where the form of the poem. Syllabics. <laughs> it's where the form of the poem adheres to. Oh, why syllabics, can, mate. It's syllabics. Why can nothing be serious with us? Why? Why? Why is it always? Well, it's, it's how we combat our inner pretentiousness. Um, I, I don't have any inner pretentiousness. No, it's, it's all, all on the outside. It's all on the outside. <laughs> you wear that like an <laughs> armor. Yes, and I can never be hurt <laughs> because I wear it like armor. Um, how's that? How's that working out for you? Not very well. <laughs> I'm dead inside, Chris. To be honest. Um, Okay, so uh, so refresh. Syllabics are where a poem Syllabic. is is syllabics. <laughs> it's where a poem is measured in its syllables. Its form takes a, a, a syllable count, yeah. sort of thing. And so we were. We Don't patronise me. Well, I was just. That's what it. You asked. All right, patronise me. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were asked about uh, to, to write a poem. Um, to to do with syllables and with strict syllables. And I wrote a poem that, that started with 10 syllables and then slowly mm. decreased throughout the poem. And I wanted to write about something that reflected the form, which was about counting down the seconds to thunder. And, nice. the, and, and the whole the idea of the poem is, is about, as the, the, the syllables get less, the language gets tighter. Um, mm. and, and also there's a closeness going on in the story. So I was trying to, to mirror that. And it, it it did happen as well. Me, me and my dad were camping. Uh, I was freezing, so he shared his sleeping bag with me. So I mm-hmm. 
three. I was like four or something. I was really young. And there was a, a storm and I got scared and, and he taught me that thing of counting down there. Yeah. And that really worked. And it was just a lovely close moment. Yeah. Do um, you do you have a clear memory of that? I have a real clear memory of the, the, the lightning and, and that sort mm. of hem of shadow grass. You know when the the and you can see all of the, the, the grass around the side of the tent because yeah. it all lights up. And that's what I, I really, really remember. Because it's it's interesting to think about with those kind of early memories how much of it is made memory up. and how mm. much of it is yeah you've just you know you've repeated it to yourself or even maybe you've been told about it by a family member and just decided that you remember it you know i wonder that about my own memory sometimes well all memories made up isn't it it's all mm. it's, your, it's your mind retelling you the same story over and over yeah so we're not recording devices really aren't we we are storytelling devices yeah, yeah. it's slightly terrifying that i think the the is idea it? of yeah i think so because then what is what is real? What really happened? Um, you can never really retain the truth of what happened. You know? It's like it's not. It's hardly five minutes into the podcast. We're getting into <laughs> <laughs> existential crisis mode. Well, that's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do, right. you, do you do you find it's useful for your writing, like having those kind of um, like external uh, limits put on you, like for example, decreasing um, syllabics? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that if you're if you're told you can only do this and this. It, yeah. it, it forces you to be creative with what you've got. Mm. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I think it's maybe it stops you going into the, the kind of the familiar patterns that your subconscious throws out mm. when you have absolute freedom. I find certainly that I, keep, I return to an awful lot of similar kind of uh, archetypes, character types, um, tones and dispositions and even story structures without meaning to it's mm. just what what comes out i find it stops me from being a lazy prat well that too, <laughs> that too yeah I, I i if i'm given too much freedom with anything if i'm given too much free time mm. i tend to waste it, it it's only yeah. when i've got lots on and everybody finds that don't they? yeah you've when you've got lots on you've got lots to do there's no time to doubt so you mm. just throw it down you just do it yeah, yeah. i think we talked before about like having uh, having like three or four hours a day <clears throat> writing time where you just you just have a block of writing that's mm. all you do and then you get it done and i think that's that's immensely freeing because then you just you've just got this this you've got to entertain yourself mm. you've got to go into new spaces you, even if you don't feel like it you've got to get something down and then you just have this wealth of work that you can you know throw away or develop or mm. um on that point mm. who are we listening to first because i because one of our guests actually talks about her process in in depth we go into it in depth does she yeah. who might we have who could we have on who, this show who do we, look, it's your turn to do the introductions go for it oh it's me okay <laughs> uh well we've got uh we've got david gaffney mm, we've got the, david the david, david gaffney, gaffney. Mm-hmm. the the famous oft seen around manchester david gaffney mm. uh david is the author of six books I think six. I couldn't. I think it's six, um, including uh, Sawn Off Tales and more Sawn Off Tales. And his latest novel, uh, All the Places I've Ever Lived. He was featured in the Best British Short Stories 2016 anthology. And his graphic novel with Dan Berry, The Three Rooms in Valerie's Head, is out now on top shelf. And David is the first and only flash fiction specialist that we've had 
on the show, which we really should have got him in earlier. <laughs> well, he's going to open the door for many other flash fiction writers. There we go. Hopefully so. Get in touch. <laughs> and uh, and then we've got and then we've got Polly. We've got Polly Checkland Harding, who is uh, doing her PhD in creative writing right here at MMU. She's writing a novel, and uh, and uh, she has the same supervisor as me. And her stories have been featured in Lighthouse and Confingo magazines, which I'm jealous of because they're beautiful magazines. Well, we're coming, we're coming to the end of the first season now, isn't it? This is episode... Yes, this is episode ocho. Ocho. Which, ocho. In, which is eight, which I is take eight, it. Eight, yeah. Yeah. Um, so eight, of, eight of ten. The, the only reason I got that is because of octagon. I was thinking <laughs> ocho, octa. Oh, yeah, eight. Nice. Um, so looking back on, on the se- season so far, what... Mm. How do you feel about it? It's emotional. It's been emotional. It's been <laughs> too... great. I think it's been it's been really interesting to to mm. to. It's so nice to to talk about uh, the craft of writing with other writers yeah. and get a sense of what people are up to. And uh, it's it's really interesting the similarities that come out. You know, mm. whenever we often talk about uh, why do you write, how do you write, what do you get out of writing. What led you to write in the first place? And the answers are almost always the same yeah. um, across everyone that we speak to. And that's really interesting. There's a disposition that sets people off on the course of being writers. Mm-hmm. And then there's an experience of writing that's almost always almost universal. One thing that we all f- often talk about is um, uh, not enjoying writing, yeah. <laughs> but loving having written. And it's it's that's really... It's really nice to see how universal that is. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think that having been involved in this project, uh, I've immensely enjoyed it, but I've yeah. also gone back to my own writing and gone, I'm not the only one who's finding this so difficult. Yes, exactly. Well, in in the interview, that one that we're going to hear you do with Polly mm. in a little while, um, Polly talks about... Uh, looking back on a first draft and, and seeing, oh, it's horrible, but it's a first draft. And, and that's, that's, I've certainly had that experience with, with some projects. I, my favourite projects uh, are when uh, they come out, they, they kind of vomited out whole. And I do nice almost, verb. thank you. And I, do, and I do almost all, almost no rewriting. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, the best prose pieces that I've written, I've done like that. And the best scripts that I've written, I think I've done like that. Um, and uh, when 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 I bash out a first draft and it's n- and it's not very good, I get very disheartened, mm. and I and I don't and I'll, I and I'm, I don't enjoy the rewriting process, and I get lost in the long grass and I lose perspective and all that. So it's but it's really. So I te- sometimes I just, you know, I'll do a lot of work on something and then it'll just sit there fallow. Um, so it's nice to hear someone talk about how, no, the first draft is toilet paper. The yeah. first draft is, is, you know, the thing that you make the final thing out of. Mm-hmm. It's just something I, I uh, that's a lesson I'm constantly trying to reteach myself. See, I'm exactly the, I'm, I'm exactly the opposite to that. Like anything that I write quickly that sort of seems finished, I don't trust it because mm-hmm. it hasn't, I haven't worked hard enough. Mm. And, and maybe that's just two different writing process i mean like you've got yeah. people like norman mckaig have you ever read norman mckaig no i haven't no. love him absolutely love him you should go and read him right. but he, he sits down with no idea or he did he's dead now lesson <laughs> this yeah it really backfired anyway um so he says <laughs> he sits down and he uh 
with a piece of paper and he has no idea what he's going to write. And then he just comes up with a phrase yeah. and he, he uses this wonderful phrase where he goes, um, he comes up with a phrase or an image and then the poem stalactites down the page. Yeah. I think that's a lovely way to write. But then there are people like Elizabeth Bishop, who's one of my favourite writers, who spent like 25 years on a single poem. Yeah. Just redrafting, redrafting, redrafting. There's a very good... I've mentioned Malcolm Gladwell's podcast uh, in this podcast before. Yes, you it's love very, plugging that I, podcast. It's a great podcast. Revisionist this history. <laughs> Everyone should listen to it. It's brilliant. But he People did, are going to be turning off that and going straight over. Don't come back. <laughs> um, he did an episode looking at uh, two different types of artists and he was looking at... Picasso and someone else. I can't remember now. Caravaggio? No, not Caravaggio. Someone else. He was looking at the the two... Uh, it's a French painter beginning with C. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> French painter? Well, not, Carava- not Caravaggio. No, because he's not a French painter. I can't help you though. My... my... Cezanne, Cezanne, thank you. Cezanne and, and Picasso. And he was saying that Picasso is the type of art, was the type of artist who uh, stuff just it emerged from him complete, and he just he just spit out this complete, daring, challenging, unique thing from, mm. right from a young age. That was how he worked. And Cezanne was the complete opposite. He would he would rework and redraft and edit things for years and years and years and years and years and he'd do or he'd do one version of something and then come back to it years later and craft it and hone it and that it's just too complete i think he talked about the kind of different kind of what's going on in the brain with those two different approaches mm-hmm. and how they're just completely different different ways of working and i i do both but i'm definitely more naturally attracted to the picasso thing of just a thing comes out and that's what it is and i don't really want to change it that much and i kind of think i'll hone it but it either works or it doesn't usually mm. i mean uh, certainly with screenwriting if you're working with other people you usually can't work like that you have to do hone it and hone it and rewrite it and rewrite it and it produces good work sometimes but it's just not how i naturally want to do it anyway <laughs> enough about me <laughs> enough about me shall we shall we get on with the show um no. No. No, let's no. not. Let's not. <laughs> what do you want to get off your chest, Mark? <laughs> what have you got to say? Let's just stall for another. <laughs> okay. Um, so who's who's going first? It's going to be David first. We're going to we're going to hear from David and I'm going to interview him. Let's 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 hear what you and uh let's hear what you and David were chatting about then. All right. Well, let's hear uh let's hear a piece from him first. So mm. here we go. Here is uh David Gaffney. The Lost Language of Hair Grips. The tiny things she had. The tweezers, the eyelash curlers, the cuticle pushers. All of them so small, so brittle. That's what I miss most about Joanna. The little things. Not the little things she did, or the little things she said. The actual little physical things she owned. Without Joanna's little things littering the place, everything looked giant. Overstuffed chairs, hulking shampoo bottles... Breeze block soap. I possessed nothing small enough to be mislaid, and this thought disturbed me, made me feel feline and uneasy. One night, I was rubbing one of Joanna's plastic hair grips against the cheese grater, sending orange plastic slivers spinning into my soup, when I realised this obsession was completely wrong. 
What I needed was some little things of my own. I discovered the answer in the aisles of the DIY store. Here were a billion little things for men to own and cherish. Curious devices like the discarded tools of a lost civilization. I filled my trolley and wheeled it to the checkout. But before I'd even paid, I met Pat. Pat had just one item in her trolley, a giant architectural plant. And following my eyes, she told me that there was nothing she hated more than little things. When her last fella brought home a pathetic little plastic man to wave at his toy locomotives, it was the final straw. There's something sinister, Pat explained to me in the car, about little things. I worry that they will divide and multiply in the night, creep inside me and possess me. You know where you are with a big thing? A big thing would never do that. I fell in love with Pat. Everything about her was big. Her house had huge bay windows like a comforting bosom into which I sank each night. I forgot completely about the little things. Think big, Pat said, and I did. So, as I said before, one of the uh, I was very keen to get you in here because you are a flash specialist, <laughs> and uh, and we haven't had haven't had any of them in before. So, um, uh, what is it about flash that attracted you? Well, I started when I started writing. Like most people, I was writing a novel because that's the sort mm. of thing I read a novel and I read long short stories. So well, I was writing a novel and got stuck in that, you know. That, that soup of being able to, unable to get out of writing the novel. You're looking at it every day, you're taking months, years over it and never feeling a sense of uh, accomplishment, never feeling that you've finished anything. Mm. And then uh, a website came along, which is called thephonebook.com. It was somebody said to me, oh, we're doing this website which has got stories of 150 words. Mm. And uh, uh, they thought at the time, this was in the 90s, that 150 words would fit into on a mobile phone text or something. Uh, okay. I'm not sure that was right, but mm. they did that. So they said, oh, we, we pay 25p a word for short stories on this website. And I said, oh, I'll have a go. Yeah. So I had a go at writing some 150-word stories, and I did this on the train. And I just found the, the, the sense of completion was really mm. rewarding that I wasn't getting working on the novel that I've been working on, like I said, for two or three years, uh, over and over, you know, going back and rewriting the same bit over and over again. And I felt I could complete something. And also I like the sense of, it's must be a thing that poets get all the time, but I like the sense of you'd produce something that you could re-see very clearly what its structure was mm. and you could take it apart easily. You could rewrite the whole thing uh, with a different vocabulary altogether. You could restructure it. You really had a, like a tiny m machine which was um, adaptable. And I quite like that about them. And I liked the, for me, I liked working to this artificial restraint of 150 words, mm. which most prose writers are not interested in. Uh, poets love that sort of thing. Yeah. And they love an artificial restraint, yeah. um, a sestina or a sonnet or something like that. Um, limitation to push against. Yeah, and but Ulipo writers and things like that do. But I quite liked it. So if a story wasn't... Uh, plus, if your story was 149 words and you made it 150 words, you got paid an extra 25p, remember? Yeah. <laughs> 25p a word. But nevertheless, Bonus. I'd liked it to be exactly 150, not 151. Well, that's, so a, that, that's a very nice yeah. challenge there. So I enjoyed it. And the other thing I enjoyed about about 
flash fiction, which I hadn't realised at the time, and I don't like the term flash fiction really, but no. we'll use it for now. But um, I've it does suggest something sort of um, su- unimportant, maybe. It, it suggests something written quickly. Yes, which some practitioners think you should do. Mm. Whereas I, I'm more of the school of you. You, you take a long time. You hone and flash, rewrite and hone and rewrite, rewrite mm. completely. Um, you know, you write the last line and then you use that as the first line and you write the whole thing again. Yeah. You, know, you do that type of thing to try ah. and it's a research. It's a research sort of process to try and investigate where the story is, I think. And I would do That's that. That's interesting, yeah. But I would start long, so I would write maybe a thousand words. Mm. Literally some of the stories I've got. Of, there are some 150-word stories in the last collection. I think one of them was two and a half thousand words long uh-huh. and f- completed in that sense. You yeah. Know, the completed story, which I then whittled away to find what I thought was the oh god the story nugget and throw the rest away. That sounds awful to me. <laughs> because another writer said, Dave, what are you doing that for? A, a friend of mine, Tanya Hirschman, who's a flash fiction yeah, yeah. writer, she would say, well, if a story's going to be 200 words long, I write 200 words. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Tanya does. She says, why write a thousand words when the length is not? But it's just the strange way that I, I work. And it's, well, I work in the same way writing novels, actually. I tend... I've, okay. Not necessarily by design, but I tend to I yeah. tend to write you know a hundred thousand words of bump and, yeah, then, yeah, and yeah. then try to find the twenty five thousand good words in it. And well, then, it's exactly and then the same more. process, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think a lot of novelists do that, don't they? And I, I when I'm writing novels, the same. You keep mm. going, keep going, find you know you're finding out what's happening yeah. and you're trying to keep a you're trying to keep a similar momentum that the reader might enjoy mm. in uh, forward movement, aren't you? So I think that I got the other thing about Flash was interesting that when I first got into writing, I hadn't really realised there would be so much demand to go and read live at events. Yes. That was something I thought. And when you're writing a novel, you know, it's very hard to to do a lively, interesting performance of a section of a novel. Yeah. You know, this is the bit where he's come down to the pub and his brother-in-law comes in and his brother-in-law's the one that murdered his dog and that's the one of that. You can do all that setup and they say, here's the scene. And the audience are like... You know, it's hard to engage with. But I realised with these short, short fictions, you could read them live, you could read a few of them live, and you got an instant reaction and they were complete. Yeah. And you were there competing on stage with the, you know, with the performance poets and spoken word artists who who had, had held that space which which was, you know, a difficult space for prose writers to to get into. So I did feel it opened that up. So I quite liked that and I found that not all of my stories are comedic or funny a few of them are mm. i would find that i would only read out the ones that were funny yeah i wouldn't read the others out at all because you want the laugh in the yeah, room you want you? a laugh you want a reaction so you get that well this is going to get a laugh and it's not laughing yeah. so the others just go by the way yeah um so i like the performance bit i like the sense of satisfaction the downside of it is it's quite it's quite it's harder work in a sense if you're trying to build a collection of mm. of flash fiction you need probably 70 80 100 stories so it's a lot because you it's need a, a bit of wastage, story, isn't it? Yeah. and every one of those stories has to, is a new world with new characters, with new names, with new things happening. Mm. It's quite exhaustive in using up ideas, and yeah, th- so that's the that's the the hard thing about about flash fiction. Whereas with a novel, when you're writing a novel. I'm writing a novel at the minute. You can just open up your laptop, and there it is. The world's there. The characters are there. Yes. Almost like a reader opening up the novel they've been reading, you can just go back into it. Yeah. And continue. Read 500 and of it, last in words. A sense, and... 
It's easy. It feels easier, yeah. but then it isn't easier to to be good. At. Well, it's it's hard to start, isn't it? Starting yeah. anything is difficult. So then getting into that, that yeah. mindset of you know, yes, yeah, starting to write. Okay. Um, I was think I was thinking the other day about how it, it, I find it very hard to connect to prose uh, in the live setting. Often there's a, there's a, a, a handful of times where I've really enjoyed like mm. a live prose reading. And I was thinking that the that when poets perform. It, they're almost always the, their character, right? The person, yeah. the person reading it is That's the protagonist. That's a really good point. Yeah. And if you can, if you, if you're someone like Miranda July, say yeah. she's also her own protagonist, yes. really a version of herself. Yeah. If you're not, if you're asking the 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 listener to buy into a creation that's that's very markedly different yes. to the reader you've got to have some serious performance chops yeah. to, to really pull that off don't you it's, it's a harder task for a prose writer i think i think it is hard and you can go badly wrong with that as well actually i mean i've seen mm. writers read when they're which is fine on the page when their main character maybe in the first person is an objectionable you know racist sexist yeah. character which is fair enough if that's from the point of view of the character yeah. but you get up and perform that on stage yeah. with that language doing that sort of thing it's it's very hard to do that unless yeah. you're literally acting a part and and the audience will think it's you absolutely because yeah. they because you're up there performing it and 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 making those comments and yeah. and the fact that it's in character doesn't really work no. very much uh, for for prose so that that's the other the other difficulty i think and then sometimes you've got things from other points of view female point of view and things like that whereas yeah. for a poet it's always i take it their point of view, if if point of view exists in poetry, yeah. How so? When you're, I'm interested in when you're editing your very short pieces. Yeah. What are you? Let's say you've got a two thousand two thousand words, and you're trying to cram it down to 150. Yeah. What are you looking for? What are the nuggets of story that make this 150 words a self-contained? Yeah. Some people don't like to use the word story, but let's say a self-contained thing. Yeah. If you don't like story. Um, what 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 should be there? What do you look for? I think you're looking for the the point. You're looking for the point of change within the character, really focusing in on that mm. and trying to get that point of change. So you might well look at everything you've written. Um, you may well look at just the the small section before the end, for example. Mm. Could be the piece of fiction could be where you cut in so it's yeah. almost like a film editor saying we don't need that scene of them going all the way down the road describing you know showing every shop front and everything we can cut all that out we can yeah. just get to the scene when they're in the betting shop yeah. and they fall over and it's yeah. kind of taking so you get to a certain point so it's simple as that but sometimes it could be just the beginning or the middle it could be you mm. could actually be compressing the whole thing I mean sometimes I've put in an awful lot of backstory about a character mm. um, where I've had all kinds of things that have happened to him in the past. I had a particular story called Uncle Leonard where all we see of Uncle Leonard is he turns up and he's um, an expert on moss and he's running an exhibition in a museum about oh, moss. Oh, Uncle Leonard. And, uh, and Uncle Leonard, he talks about that and he's, he's, a, he's getting older and he hasn't got a partner and that's it. But in the long thousand word story, Uncle Leonard's had a relationship and he didn't know that the, the, the partner in that relationship was pregnant and never told him and she had an abortion and disappeared. Mm. The character listening to his story knows all that. So this whole weight of st story around it, which I, I kind of take away and then I hope in some like a homeopathic way yeah. <laughs> that the, the remnants of this of weight is kind of still in. It's, it's not really, it's my fantasy. Well, but that, I wonder if it is still in there. Is that 
you finding the character. Yeah, it is really, yeah. It's getting to that point where you've got this character. People are thinking, yeah, I can kind of see where he is. It's a bit like you look at a David Shrigley cartoon Mm. and you look at it and you... It takes a while to, to take it in and work out what it is. And you you know that there's a lot of things behind it. Yeah. A lot of scaffolding's been built to to get to that point, but you don't know what it is. Absolutely. But you've reached a point and it and, and I think that some pieces of work work really well like that. Mm. And and you don't always need the the background and the flashbacks and the the, the, the backstories of characters. You can just really meet them where they are. Yeah. And it's like seeing a couple in a you know you know, eavesdropping on someone on a train or a cafe and sort of understanding mm. a lot about their relationship and their past life in a sense without knowing the facts of it. You can kind of get it mm. and get it from a, a flash of, of uh, drama. That was Chris talking to David Gaffney and now here is a piece from Polly Chuckland-Harding. How? After Premonitions by Caroline Duffy. The letter ends. X. I retreat unreading lines he could never keep straight. Will you still not believe me? Her hats hanging on my wall were all I've ever missed. And bearing his message, I'd unsay it if I could. Back towards the letterbox. Connie, I'm sorry. Where the tear in the envelope mends, together with my breath. I withdraw along the hall and the morning regains its whole and lonely shape. The stairs raise my body to bed, to sleep, and with it rewinding nightmares brought on by an evening heavy with wine and wishing. Wishing for the time before we watch each other across his sheets, naked and like strangers, because minutes earlier he says her name whilst inside me. That night takes back its blackness, and the candles reshape around their wicks. We ignore the circles on the wall where her hats once kept the paint from being sun-bleached. My earring underneath his sock is not yet lost, and other things are possible as Ella Fitzgerald's voice begins at the end of a song about faith and a paper moon. I recede, a guest somewhere she hasn't entirely left yet. I am elsewhere each time she appears at his apartment replacing the easel or orange tree in her arms onto the shadow shapes they've worn into the carpet until her things belong better in their shared flat than I do. Her hats hang over the bed, though he says it's months since he's been with her when he first sleeps with me, weeks when we start dating, and days when, waiting for the train, he asks me for a lighter and, failing that, my name. Does he take hope from the brightening sky before leaving from the station? He chooses the summer coat she gave him anyway, not knowing that the day is cold and forgetting that its pockets are empty. Hello, Polly, and and thank you for joining us on Two Minute Stories today. It's lovely to be here. That was that was really uh, atmospheric piece, and and inspired by it, it came after Caroline Duffy's Premonitions, mm. is that right? Yeah. Uh, it, it and it follows that same sort of use of going backwards in time. Yeah, what I love was, that poem. Mm, what yeah. was it about the poem that really got you? I found it um, very moving. So um, for anyone who's not read it, it um, it's really. Uh, 
kind of in memoriam, I suppose, um, about her mother. Um, and it uses the same structure of starting, well, in this case, at the end of a life and um, moving backwards in time. Um, and I found it incredibly kind of poignant seeing somebody who you've just lost. Um, there's a, a lot of images of, of that kind of recovery and the idea of somebody kind of coming back to life. Um, and I... I, I just loved that structure and wanted to use it to think about, I guess, the end of something else, the end of a relationship. Um, and I think that quite human sense of wondering quite how you've ended up where you are mm. and the the sort of that, that wishing backwards um, instinct that I think we sometimes have when we've lost something that's a wonderful thing that i think writing gives us a chance to mm. get us to, to it's almost wish fulfillment i mean with this piece what's interesting is is that i try to write a real sense of loss into it and of, of hurt but i think or what i was trying to do with it is to also achieve um a, a kind of a layering to that. So what what happens in it is that you start to realise that maybe the kind of foundation of the relationship was um, a little bit problematic anyway. You have this kind of overlap between these two women um, and the presence of the other woman, which, um, you know, that, that happens sometimes when relationships cross over. But the confusion, I guess, a little bit, a bit about who is who. Um, so, so, yeah, it felt like I, I didn't... I, I think... I think if I'd have done this about a purely uh, like a sort of unmitigatedly happy relationship, it mm. could have come across as sentimental because there's a lot of quite um, poetic language, as you as I think you mentioned, um, uh, and it could kind of all seem very you know roses and Ella Fitzgerald, and, and I wanted to sort of offset that a little bit with um, actually the poignancy of someone having been quite badly hurt. Mm. It and it is. It's it's very much a prose piece. Mm. Uh, would you describe? Oh, do you, do you think it is a prose piece? Would you describe it as as strictly prose? I yeah. I feel like it. You know, I I sort of it was inspired by a poem, so it kind of almost inevitably had poetic elements. Um, the the opening of it is quite difficult to do on the voice in a way because um, uh, it. The way I've done it on the page is is each of those lines as I, as it begin is on its own distinct line, and the lines of the actual letter are in italics, so it's a bit easier to just one hundred percent definitely see that um, that that yeah that the difference between the thing that he's written and and the story, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's more poetic in its language necessarily than it's kind of certainly how it's set out on the page. I was really impressed by how you, you kept your composure during answering that question because people won't realise listening in, but <laughs> the, the lights have been steadily dimming <laughs> in here while we've been talking. Like so they were, but yeah, we got, we're getting rid of a buzz, but that was really, that was really well and succinctly answered. <laughs> That distraction, so. I was sort of thinking maybe the apocalypse is happening, <laughs> and uh, I'm talking about the difference between prose and poetry. So it makes it so much more heartbreaking going backwards in time mm. as well, because you know what's coming, mm. don't you? And that's the thing: is it as, as things mend, like even even the the, the first images of a, a letter mending, mm. and the whole idea of almost things being repaired, mm -hmm. but you know that what's coming next. Uh, have you ever played with that sort of form before in anything else? No, um, no. This, I think, I think you know, m more typically, 
in prose, we maybe get um, the use of flashback. So where you're suddenly transported back in time into when things were different. But for me, what's so fascinating about about this rewinding thing that Caroline Duffy does and I've used here is that you get you get to see that progression and it kind of I wanted it to feel like really like you were slipping backwards in time and you could really see her moving backwards up the stairs but also that um where I kind of wanted it to to land right at the ending um was this slight twist of of uh you know of of ends with him actually which is I don't know I I was in two minds about but um but with his choosing the coat that his ex gave him and this quite sort of um I don't know what word to use ending it on emptiness as well mm. it, it, which is actually the start of this story because mm. of the form so that sort of coming from from nothing it's going nothing will come yeah you know and all of that you, you said you were in two minds about ending it with with him what mm. was it that caused that well I think I mean it was because for me we're with her and we're with her experience all the way through and it, it almost I almost felt like I was sort of breaking a narrative rule that the piece itself had set up by shifting into his um consciousness I felt like I could just about get away with it from the idea that perhaps that you that this is something that the woman in the poem knew. Um, and so, but yeah, I, there was something, I felt almost like I was betraying her, to be honest. And that it's an odd thing to say, but I felt like it, it maybe should have ended with, you know, where she was before the relationship rather than him. Mm. But I felt like it landed better or differently when it was him. Mm. Um, and, and also that he is the person who carries these two women within his experience so hers is of you know coming into a scene that this other woman has just left or is leaving and he knows them both and I think that's quite a an interesting dynamic in a relationship and it's interesting that you say that you felt like you betrayed Mm. her there was there's a a sense of of real caring for this Mm. character well, yeah, I mean, God, I, I do such horrible things to my characters. <laughs> um, you know, this is a, quite a big worry I have in a way in the novel that I'm write, um, working on at the moment is that it's it, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of, of hurt and the hurt that people do to one another in it. And I, I have this slightly responsible sense of what it is to do that in prose. And I guess not that, not that, we can't do that in prose or poetry, but there is a responsibility that comes with that to, I don't know, to be respectful to who that person is, to tell a kind of truth in in the pain that you're describing. Um, and, yeah, um, to sort of stick with them until their story is told. Mm. Yeah.
You're very, very British of you. I'm very... I've switched to tea because uh, I had to, because coffee was giving me the jitters. Uh, but oh, I'm, I enjoyed the jitters. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, These were problematic natu- jitters. naturally jittery person, so anything that enhances my natural jittery... I think I'm a naturally jittery person too. I think that's why it was too much. <laughs> oh, fair enough. On top of my natural jitters, I had the coffee jitters. I'm quite smug at the moment, though. Um, because that's just my personality. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, surely there's a... Fuck off. <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> smug, all right? I'm a smug little shit. Why are you particularly smug I'm particularly right smug right now because uh, I eliminated sugar from my tea. Ooh. I know. That's, you know what, that's a fair reason to be smug. There you go. I thought it would be impossible and it took about a week. And now I, I, I don't even miss it. <laughs> don't even miss it. Don't even bring it up in general conversation. I don't, I don't even brag about it every single fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, what have we learned, Mark? What have we learned today um, on this odd show? On this odd show? Has it been an odd show? It's probably been a regular show. Well, I'm. it's really nice to hear from a, uh, two prose writers, just two prose writers together, mm. which is nice. And, just, and also, but this is the thing, they're not... It's not traditional prose. Mm. They're both of them are writing like even like flash fiction and 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 what and and yeah, both were actually flash fiction pieces. But they were, because of that, they take on they sort of inhabit a no man's land between poetry and prose yeah. because of the tightness of the form. A lot of my stuff does that too. It's it's a particular kind of it's a way of writing I like a lot. Like paying paying particular attention to. To the quality of language and cadence and rhyme features mm. within uh, a prose form, I think that's there's something about that that really appeals to me. Yeah. Largely because I don't have the craft, discipline, or knowledge to write a decent poem, so <laughs> I have to. Oh, and neither do I, but nobody seems to have noticed. Oh, <laughs> oh, shush, Mark! Oh, shush! Fishing for those compliments. <laughs> uh, I yeah no I, I I it's been a different show because of the the mm. we've had two different writers on than we normally hear and it's been it's just been I don't know I've 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 felt that so much work goes into something so small mm. that I, I don't it's heartening have you have you ever written any prose uh, yes yes I have how did that go. Um, well, <laughs> have you read any of my? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> um, I, I, what What have you written? I first thing I ever got published was was a flash fiction piece. Ah, okay. In a little student magazine when I was an undergraduate. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing prose. Mm. I lo- I really enjoyed that, and um, I was going to be a prose writer, mm. uh, but I just fell madly deeply truly in love with poetry and have never looked back really i i really enjoy it i enjoy building characters mm. it's one of the huge things i really liked about it i kind of i don't know if i'm gonna go back to it though you are am i yeah it's where it's where all the money is isn't exactly it? it's that's, that's why <laughs> uh, the, you'll write a couple of poetry collections and then your agent will say do you would you like to write a novel mark <laughs> god uh, <laughs> Um, I have to get an agent first. Um, but, yeah, I remember talking to a writer who I, a poet who, who I really look up to, who shall remain nameless, uh, who was telling me about Ted Hughes and that apparently the story goes that 
Dad Hughes, towards the end of his life, started writing more and more prose. Mm. And it was the the prose that killed him. <laughs> uh, that's that's the that's the myth of it. The prose that killed um, him. But, or yeah, the butler. Or the butler. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of, I, I just, I want to master poetry. Mm. And uh, I, I just want to be a poet, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I will might yeah, well, write... good, good luck with being broke your whole life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy that. Suits me fine so far. Uh, I think that it was, I, I enjoyed listening to you and Polly talking about... Um, skipping in time and the rewinding of time mm. time slipping backwards rather than flashing back you know i think that's a that's that's something that really attracts me in prose there's something about prose and the reordering of time mm. um that seems to work really well i think uh i think i've i've noticed that in in effective novels especially at the start of effective novels i think quite often there's a um, an attention paid to time and what time is and how it affects us. I'm not sure why. There's something about the novel form that just kind of, I feel like if you're not looking at the way we experience time, then something's missing from the novel. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a, a novel that really plays around with time. Um, it's It's so common to see, you know, on the first page of a novel, in the second or third paragraph, slipping backwards into memory mm. or dream or childhood or something. It's so common that that kind of that movement from the present moment backwards. I guess that's how we live our lives, isn't it? And then and prose tends to inhabit interiority, tends to be about what's going on inside a person, mm -hmm. either directly or kind of indirectly. And that's how we that's what happens. That's what, how I experience life. Anyway, I walk around constantly slipping back into into, oh, this reminds me of this. Or I'm, now I'm going back and thinking of this when I see this, this image. And it reminds me of this image when I was a kid and I see this and it reminds me of this. I mean, like, life doesn't have that clean, clear. I'm walking around experiencing today with my feet that firmly very, on today's pavement doesn't that very sort of zen live in the moment. Yeah. Sort of, that, that yeah like, I mean, I try, but <laughs> Uh, so what are you going to be reading for us? Are you going to be ah. playing around with time? Do you actually uh, know what you're going to be reading? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, shut up. Yes, I do. Sorry, I just looked at that. That was doubt. a dramatic pause. Oh, I was thinking about my piece. <laughs> Screw you. I'm often thinking about your piece, to be honest. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, dear. Show over. Uh, um, I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to do a callback. To, there was a piece that I wrote. I wrote. Um, I took a line from your poem, Crystal, mm -hmm. which was the sound of glass almost breaking, and I wrote a very short piece of flash fiction, which has I've had a very good response to. People have read that have kind of said it was their favourite piece uh, of mine. Well, um, you're welcome. About... I'm, glad I, I'm <laughs> glad I could give you that. Thank you. Well, me too. Me too. People love it. I, I like it, but other people... Are, I'm, are I'm such a bastard too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. Brush it off. Um, the uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not so convinced by it. I like it, but other people have been really keen on it. Mm. Uh, it was about a, um, a woman whose organs are encased in a, a very thin, fragile layer of keratin. Mm. And... Uh, I've uh, I decided to follow that character and write a couple of 
short pieces following her and uh this is this is the second of those so it's going back to that glass organs girl character that's my piece i don't know if i don't know if i deal with time and don't know how i deal with time in this piece we'll find out stay tuned and so here's chris to close the show for us delicacy she reaches her 24th birthday with the glass around her organs mostly intact there had been one or two incidents but who couldn't say the same once on her year in bremen She'd gone dancing with a lugubriously handsome football player from the university B-team and contracted some kind of fracture that had spiderwebbed around her pancreas. She'd felt it spreading inside, the cracking of the sugar on a toffee apple. Bruises bloomed on her abdomen, jellyfishing to the surface before your very eyes, midnight blue. He'd been nice, sat with her in the emergency room, brought her spritzkuchen to cheer her up, smiled a rumply smile under terrified guilty brows. He wasn't a bad guy in his way. Henrik, was it? Henning? By the time she moves into the flat in Islington with Lucy, she's become a not insignificantly successful writer. For the online arms of broadsheet newspapers mostly, and zeitgeisty American or American-esque scenes, she is the glass organs girl. Her piece for the New Yorker was something of a hit. Malcolm Gladwell had emailed. What a terribly interesting article, the email had said. What a terrible and interesting article. He went on to explain over several paragraphs that he didn't mean terrible in a pejorative sense and to suggest that she let him know the next time she's in New York so that she could come over and meet him and his wife, try his beef bourguignon, and he could pick her brain if that too wasn't encased. Ha ha. Comporting herself with grace becomes a habit. She learns to walk on invisible cushions of air. She wears a see-through raincoat around Shoreditch as wry self-commentary slash self-promotion. There goes that glass organs girl. Her brain, in fact, is not encased, and she relishes throwing her head backways and sidewards when laughing, flicking her feathered hair, relishes the bounce, the little headache, the worried looks she attracts. One of these days, Lucy said to her one night, after too many gin and tonic and cassises, all your insides are going to shatter, and all that stuff inside is just gonna just gonna leak right out like diarrhea. She tells Lucy that that was probably a bit fucking far and puts her to bed, wiping the hair away from her sweaty forehead and considering the normality, the primacy of Lucy's organs, pulsing and beating away in her body, hot and wet and drunk and suited to their environment. She thinks it really was a bit fucking much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 